0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Uh, Today, I'm very excited because I get to talk to somebody who we've talked about on the show before, I believe, and whose work hasn't been far from my mind since I started reading it. And that person is John Constable. How are you, John? Thanks for joining us.
1: Very well, indeed. It's very kind of you to ask me along for it a chat about these curious subjects.
0: Yeah, well, and thank you for making the time. So I think what's interesting is that as far as I understand, you and I are both humanities guys that have ended up in the energy space, or at least are talking about it quite publicly. So I was wondering if you could sort of tell our listeners a little bit about you, your background, and how you ended up writing about energy in such a deep and insightful way. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I I certainly am from the humanities. Uh, I read English at Cambridge and did a PhD in that subject. I've always had a very bad case of science envy. And the sort of things that I gravitated towards eventually were fundamentally either historical or psycholinguistic. And most of my work in English, in which I'm most proud, apart from the fundamental scholarly stuff, worked around concepts of randomness and order in language structures. And that's where I branched off into energy because I was quite an enthusiastic programmer at the time, uh, not so much lately, but I generated large bodies of numbers and I couldn't really understand them. My mathematics wasn't up to it. So I started working with a physicist and in order to understand the data, uh, he had to teach me a certain amount of Mm -hmm. fundamental thermodynamics and statistical thermodynamics. And that proved Uh, very useful when I started taking an interest in energy. So the jump is not, to me, quite as large as it might seem to others. I was already playing around in in these areas uh, before. And indeed, it's not quite a trivial jump, because as you'll know from what I've written, I regard the definition of capital as being very inclusive, that it covers all sorts of things which people might not initially think of as capital. Yes, it covers bridges and buildings and machines, mm-hmm. but it also covers complex mental representations and the traditions of those representations in societies, which, of course, is the fundamental subject of the humanities. So I think there's quite a lot of overlap between what I was doing and what I am now doing, though, of course, uh, from a specialist engineer's perspective, you and I both remain amateurs, <laughs> kind of warm down us, but, but amateurs nonetheless.
0: Yeah, yes. Yeah, dedicated amateurs.
1: That's, real. That's a nice way of putting it.
0: Yeah. yeah. So the, the work we're going to talk about today is a talk you gave at the Montpeller and Society. It's titled Misconceptions of the Industrial Revolution, Prospects for Individual Liberty in the Post-Pandemic Era, which is all sorts of things that we've been talking a lot about on the show, which was launched in the midst of the pandemic and was meant to answer why everything seemed somehow stuck despite the crisis. And... I was wondering while reading this, so the essay goes into, or the lecture, I should say, goes into a long discussion of where the idea of the Industrial Revolution comes from. I had figured that it was just a fact that it had happened, but it does and it doesn't. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that element of the argument of this lecture.
1: Yes, I I started digging into this really because i could see the discussion of the low carbon policy area was mm-hmm. dominated by concepts of discontinuity so that we there was supposed to be a discontinuity in the past and we were expecting a discontinuity now there was a the industrial revolution now we're going to have the next phase of whatever mm-hmm. that is a, a green industrial revolution or a, a third the transition number it is, a transition and as a humanities person of course uh, words fascinating, and you mm-hmm. begin to think, well, perhaps, is that, is that justified? And I began to have doubts about the justification, because in the empirical data relating to both renewables and overall decarbonisation, mm-hmm. I couldn't see any evidence of a transition.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you people talk about the energy transition in Europe, if you look at the fundamental data, you don't see a radical shift to renewables. You see an increase in their proportion, but the macroscopic Dominant feature is actually a stagnation or a decline in energy consumption in the OECD. Mm. So not quite what was expected. And when you look at the data relating to the period of Industrial Revolution, there are similar puzzles in there. It's not that coal replaced all other kinds of energy in Britain. Everything Mm. expands. Mm. And it expands from much earlier than the traditionally denominated period of Industrial Revolution. So I became curious about the roots of this term and its origins and started digging into it. And quite quickly in economic history, you realize that in fact, there's a steady undercurrent of real dissatisfaction with the term. And Mm -hmm. privately I'd had discussions with uh, friends in Cambridge who will say, of course, we don't really believe in it, but we just have to use this word. You know, you can't publish a book on this field without using that term, you couldn't sell it otherwise. And that seemed like a very unsatisfactory.
0: It seems like um, that conversation Niels Bohr had with a visitor at his country house who showed up and saw the horseshoe over the doorframe. They said, my God, you're a man of science. You can't possibly believe that that wards off evil spirits. And he said, no, of course not. But I've heard it works even if you don't believe in it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can certainly sell books even if you don't believe in the it. It's it's an obligatory term. And and digging into the term, I I found, to my surprise, that actually it wasn't used uh, at all in English before the 1880s. And I'd had some glimmering of that. I I have read a great deal of the literature Mm -hmm. uh, from the medieval period up to the present day. And I have to say, I couldn't, I didn't remember it in Mary Gaskell's novels. I didn't remember it in Dickens, but I thought perhaps I'd just forgotten it.
0: You Mm -hmm. know, it's such
1: commonplace, perhaps one just didn't notice it. But in fact, no, it's not not present in English until the 1880s. It is present in French Mm -hmm. in the 1790s and in the early 1820s and 30s. Uh, but used in a completely different way. So the French introduced the term saying, we've had the political revolution, now we're going to have the industrial revolution to go with it. So it was referred to to France. And it wasn't until referred to this fact in the 1830s that the French had not had the industrial revolution they expected, but something strange was happening in monarchical aristocratic stick-in-the-mud Britain. Mm. It was very surprising um, that it began to be applied to, to the English world. And of course, then it was a quite straightforward matter of tracking it through first Engels, who picked it up for uh, the condition of the working class in England, and then through its use in Marx. And then its reintroduction in the 1880s through a series of extraordinarily compelling public lectures uh, given by Arnold Toynbee, not cycles of history, Tom Toynbee, but his uncle, uh, Mm. who, who died young in 1883. And these lectures were enormously influential. And they account for the reintroduction of what by that time was a Marxist term, because it, it was best known through the articulations of Engels and Marx. But in its roots, it was a French revolutionary term. Toilet gave it a completely different reflection. He, he was a, a Christian moral thinker, and he didn't see this as a political revolution. He saw it as a coup d'économie by the mi- middle classes, the bourgeois, certainly. But he saw it as requiring not a counter-revolution or a new revolution, but as requiring a, a moral reorientation. Mm-hmm. So he was, and and this was an extremely acceptable and indeed compelling uh, position. So he carried what was fundamentally a French revolutionary Marxist term straight through into the heart of the British institutions. Hmm. In a comparatively short period of time, even though he died, he had many gifted pupils and friends, including the first professor of economic history at Harvard, William Ashley, and many other followers who took the message out very quickly. And it, it, it triumphed in a matter of 20 years. It became absolutely de rigueur. So this is this perception of discontinuity was, was created. Mm. I mean, it really was. It's not. It's an artifact uh, of discourse rather than observation. There's no evidence in the economical historical data for an industrial revolution. The English industrial revolution is truly a misnomer, as some people have suggested. It wasn't solely English. It's Northern European. It wasn't solely industrial; it affects every aspect of society, mm-hmm. and it happened over three, four, five hundred years. It wasn't a revolution in any meaningful sense of the term, except possibly the planetary revolution—something very slow and ponderous. Now, that has enormous implications for the way we approach what we're doing with decarbonisation and the energy transition. I mean, if there wasn't uh, a revolutionary discontinuity in the introduction of coal, and there wasn't, mm-hmm. then we may be being quite unrealistic in expecting a revolutionary displacement of fossil fuels over time at present. It'll take much, much longer to find a low carbon substitute, probably. And in addition, the character of the transition that we observe in England at that period is from a very low quality fuel source, the land, actually, Mm -hmm. fundamentally renewable, high entropy source, uh, to a very, very low entropy source such as coal. And of course, that is exactly the reverse what we're attempting today when we're attempting to reintroduce chaotic high entropy sources of energy and displace what are physically very superior sources of energy, such as gas, coal, oil, and of course, um, the uh, subatomic energy trapped in, in uranium mm-hmm. and other fissile materials. So the, the lesson of economic history is, is dual. Firstly, we shouldn't be expecting a discontinuity. And secondly, the, the direction of travel thermodynamically uh, seems to be irrational at present based on previous experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So it seems to me like one of the things that's happening or what I understood in your lecture is that what is being set up as an energy transition now is built on a fundamental misunderstanding of the Industrial Revolution, and it is trying to anticipate and aspire to rapid change in the same way that its advocates think of the Industrial Revolution as happening, a radical break from the way in which we've done things before.
1: Yes, a radical break can happen within a humanly relevant Mm -hmm. timescale, which gives one the impression that one can make a difference. I mean, why do things seem so difficult or even impossible? well because it's very difficult to achieve anything very substantial within a human lifetime Hmm.
0: it seems to me to be an old idea of almost eschaton which helped hold the holy roman empire together this idea that the end days wouldn't arrive until the empire disintegrated of course made it meaningful to do certain activities within the empire to keep it going but as it so happened the end of the Holy Roman Empire wasn't just a political, economic, whatever we want to call it, crisis. It was also one of self-understanding after the Reformation. It was a total shift uh, in expectations, but not in the way that people had longed Mm. for that kept the political community together, more or less.
1: Well, I fear that a failure in self-understanding may actually cause us very considerable difficulties. Yes, we have to, you know, this is uh, the key issue here is we have to understand why it is that we've become so rich, where all previous societies failed. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Wrigley at Cambridge has suggested that when you people ask what started the English Industrial Revolution, they're asking completely the wrong question. That mm. all societies are going into continuous growth. It's just that it, they don't sustain it. Mm-hmm. It isn't continuous. In fact, they're always going into exponential growth, but it fails. But since the late medieval period in in England, uh, Northwestern Europe has been in a period of sustained growth and now the whole world is more or less and Mm. everybody else who isn't is trying to get into that. Well, what made the difference? And Mm. the difference, economists might say that the difference is to do with societal structures or sociopolitical arrangements, institutional arrangements such as Douglas North has suggested. I think it's quite simply the introduction of thermodynamically superior fuels Mm -hmm. which gives you an enormous margin of energy returned on energy invested, which means that the energy sector can be very small in comparison to this vast non-energy sector, which creates wealth, which serves all other sorts of human requirements. And that very superior fuel input enables you to keep on expanding the fuel supply. And that is the fundamental difference. And economists have been very unhelpful here, I fear, actually. And I look at economics really as a philosopher, and I think it's fundamentally an 18th century field still. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Leontief gave a talk in the 1950s when he said that economics hasn't progressed. We know this because you think of two major 19th century thinkers, John Stuart Mill and James Clark Maxwell, leading figures in their fields, economics and physics respectively. And you imagine them coming back to the U.S., coming to the U.S. in 1950 and attending respectively a, mem- a meeting of the American Physical Society and um, the American Economics Association, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Maxwell would be lost, absolutely lost. Physics had moved on so much. Brilliant, great man, though he is. He Mm -hmm. would be lost. John Stuart Mill, he would be at home immediately because economics had barely changed. Mm I mean, here they are still talking about land, labour and capital. This is a fundamental ontology of Mm. economics. They haven't developed at all. You think of the ontology of physics, it's transformed in that period. That's not a healthy sign. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: So economic doesn't really doesn't isn't sufficiently physical it's too abstract still it hasn't grasped the changes in in physics which would enable it to think of societies as thermodynamic events thermodynamic processes and because after all the field of economics is as some thinkers 1920s and 30s reported it's the ecology of the human species Mm -hmm. well if it's the ecology of the human species Uh, then physics is as relevant to human activities as it is to any other organism. And that's missing in modern economics. So they miss the importance of energy. Indeed, they refer, really think of it as a substance. So economists take it to be just another input, really, when clearly it isn't. It isn't an input at all, because energy doesn't exist in that sense. Mm -hmm. It's a concept. It's an abstract description of the potential to cause change, which is possessed by all inputs. And therefore, it's extremely relevant to understanding mm. what causes growth within human ecological systems, in other words, within their economic systems.
0: Well, this is what I found provocative about your essay. I mean, I wonder if uh, those in attendance at the Mont Pelerin Society, which, for those who don't know, was the sort of birthing grounds for what became, sometimes as uh, a slur, neoliberalism later on, which very much values ideas of liberty and sees these um, institutions, some of the thinkers that come out of them as the bedrock for liberty. But you have a different argument in your piece. You say it is not institutions or culture or what have you. It is in fact, this increase in thermodynamic potential that we get when we move towards uh, denser, less entropic fuel sources.
1: Yes, I, I'm as strong a, a stronger lover of liberty as anybody mm-hmm. in the Mont society. And I wish to see human freedom extended as far as possible on the surface of the earth. But I think we have to be realistic about where it comes from, particularly if mm. you value it. Now, let's be honest about it. Wealth is the fundamental creator of liberty, it's that which broadens the human niche and suspends competition between us and allows us to be tolerant of each other and thus the satisfaction of the desires of others. In straitened circumstances, competition is too, is ferocious, the human niche is narrow. There's no room for liberty.
0: Mm.
1: Wealth does create liberty. We can see this in economic history. Many societies have become extremely rich long before they were free. Britain was rich in the 16th and 17th centuries. It certainly wasn't a free society. Tudor England was not a free society. Stuart England was not, although a major war was fought in Britain in, in order to make it so. Mm-hmm. And ultimately that was successful. So wealth is created. Uh, wealth creates liberty. Now I don't deny, of course, economists are right and, and the liberal thinkers and the Mont Pelerin Society are correct in saying that liberal measures subsequently greatly enhance the production of wealth. This is auto-catalytic. Wealth creates liberty, which creates more wealth, which creates more liberty, and so on. So it's self-reinforcing. And that's a very important point to realize. But it's not sufficient simply to say, well, it's autocatalytic, so it's liberty that matters most. You've got to keep the energy supply up in order to preserve the liberty which you enjoy, and particularly if you wish to extend it to other societies. It's no good taking liberal measures to an energy-poor society. It's not going to work. You have to make them rich first. And that, of course, introduces many difficulties, both geopolitical and sociopolitical, for those states that are undergoing that kind of development.
0: So my question is, in hearing that, because there's part of me that just wholeheartedly agrees, almost without question, when I look at the developing world and their needs. It seems, I agree with Alex Epstein, that it would be an absolute crime to deprive them of the use of fossil fuels.
1: Even if we could, yes. even
0: Yeah, even if we could, which we can't, right? We could be unhelpful and we can be in the way, but in mm. the long run, there's no way to stop it, I don't think. But my question is perhaps more philosophical, and maybe you can help me with this, about the nature of liberty or, or freedom. Is there a danger that the type of thinking gets rid of important political understandings of liberty and replaces them just with thermoeconomic understandings of them.
1: In the sense that you, you think there should be some restraint on human action? Not necessarily. There always be, and there always, in practical terms, there will always will be such a mm-hmm. restraint because we agree to have moral rules. I mean, they're mm-hmm. invented in my view. I don't think they're transcendental in any sense. So their reflections of probable self-interest and they're agreed upon within societies they are extremely flexible, in fact, over time. Mm. Um, so I don't think there'll be any, I'm not suggesting there's a kind of, uh, unrestrained free-for-all mm-hmm. in societies, that's most unlikely, never has been the case and never will be, just as there's never been a, a pure contract society to use Henry May terms, there would right, be a pure right, contract right. society or a pure mm-hmm. status society. I am, Britain in the 19th century was one of the freest societies that's ever existed mm-hmm. in global history, but it had very strong status elements, and those will remain. So I don't think that a, a purely thermoeconomic society, as you suggest, is very likely. There is always going to be uh, some kind of moral restraint, even though that is uh, invented and arbitrary, uh, rather than reflecting anything inscribed in the structure of the universe, as far as we can tell.
0: Mm, mm, okay. Okay. No, that's clarifying, because I guess... Perhaps I've simply noticed a tendency these days, and I'm not saying that you do this, but rather I was thinking of thoughts that might spool out from your essay where people seem to take the most uh, reductive uh, approach possible in hopes that that is the same thing as the most practical approach possible and say, if we just do thermoeconomic interventions or whatever we want to call them, and don't consider institutions at all, it'll work out in the long And I don't know mm. that any, as you said, human society could ever be constructed in such a way.
1: No, that would be a, a rather depleted technocratic approach uh, to the matter. Um, as a matter of fact, we have these institutions and tradition, moral traditions which vary across the world. Um, my point is practical in the sense that i'm very concerned that we're making poor choices about energy inputs mm-hmm. and that we may be unable to sustain the institutional structures and indeed the physical structures that we enjoy and mm-hmm. have broadened the niche and given us the liberty to uh, evolve such tolerant moral systems i'm concerned that bad choices about energy will lead to a, constri- a moral constriction
0: mm. uh,
1: in in human societies I just want to get that right. I'm certainly not a technocrat, and I would be very reluctant to see government bodies trying to administer this. And as we know governments are very bad at governing, collecting information, making decisions. They, by definition, they never make mistakes, so they can never learn from the mistakes that they act. And we've seen that in, in Britain and in Europe generally. I mean, there's been heavy adoption of renewables here, which has been very unsuccessful. Governments are finding it extremely difficult, indeed almost impossible, to admit that anything has gone wrong. Uh, with this in the midst of all of
0: this as well it is in, remarkable absolutely.
1: well it's 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 difficult for people to understand i mean yesterday the secretary general of the un the the ukrainian war uh, was the death knell for fossil fuels well it, he couldn't be more wrong actually mm-hmm. what it shows is how extraordinarily valuable and important they still are and you can actually there's much more realism in europe about this than you might think i mean uh, germany is now seriously talking about extending the life of its coal program in order mm-hmm. to ensure fuel diversity. And they realize that, yes, they need money, more different sources of gas internationally, um, but they may even need to actually diversify into coal. And Britain may need to do this too. Uh, mm-hmm. Remarkable though it is. And this is important. I mean, it's perfectly rational to have a climate policy, but our current climate policies are simply not rational. If you want to reduce emissions, you've got to find a way of doing it, which doesn't damage society. It's not trivial reductions in standards of living. It's not fewer foreign holidays. It's not, not redecorating your house every so many years. It's much more serious than that. It's talking about weakening the society overall. And if that starts to happen, then you're going to lose any kind of low emissions agenda. And it's, as I say, it's perfectly rational to have a climate policy, but mm-hmm. the climate policy has to be sufficiently low cost to maintain the societies that we currently have. Otherwise, it will founder.
0: Well, and that's one of the things, sort of the debate over what low cost means, because, you know, I've been doing, I'm working on a long form piece on who killed nuclear in America and how we can bring it back to life. And one of the things I found is that, of course, the entire, it is hard to be more rent seeking and fundamentally dishonest than the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in America. In terms of driving high cost up, and that seems to be one of the uh, ways in which especially green NGOs make the case for renewables. They say, well, nuclear is so expensive, in part because we helped make it that way. So we must do renewables, which are cheaper, which I guess is true insofar as a tent is cheaper than a house.
1: Yeah. It's a fair point. I mean, the, the... Nuclear will be intrinsically cheap because of its energy density and its thermodynamics data. So it has an enormous energy return on energy invested. It won't be easy to use nuclear effectively. And, mm. and it's proved not to be easy. It proved to be difficult. But that was true for oil too. Mm-hmm. And indeed for coal. You know, high superior fuels require quite a lot of accumulated capital in order mm-hmm. to use them successfully. As you will know, one of the examples I've used is that of Alexander the Great marching his armies into the Caspian area mm-hmm. and being confronted with hydrocarbons just bubbling out of the earth at him. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't use them. No. He, he didn't have diesel engines. He didn't have chemical engineers, <laughs> uh, refineries and so on. I mean, if he had, we'd all be speaking Macedonian. Yep. But, uh, uh, he didn't. All he could do was to play with it. They covered themselves with it and they burned it a little bit. And they, but they hadn't the really accumulated societal mm-hmm. capital to make use of it. And that's, I think, is actually where we are with nuclear. It's relatively new technology. I know the industry likes to say it's mature, and that's not really, strictly speaking, true. We know that technologies take a long time to develop. The first steam engines, after all, were were built in Britain in the late 1690s. They weren't really good just before they became obsolescent in the 1890s, and the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time to accumulate sufficient mental representations, accurate mental representations, to enable you to build really good conversion devices. And I think that's true for nuclear. It's just going to take time. Mm -hmm. Renewables, on the other hand, these are intrinsically expensive. You have a very high entropy input, and you want, of course, low entropy service at the point of consumption. So a lot of correction has to take place between the input from the wind and the solar and the consumption point, usually electricity. In other words, there's a negative entropy inflow coming in, and that's going to be the cost. And that negative entropy inflow at the moment is actually coming from fossil fuels because it's coming through fossil fuels, which make the panels, which make the wind turbines, which are complex objects, which are giving order to the the wind Mm -hmm. and the sun. And it comes from the complex system operation in the electricity system and the fluctuating output required of the residual generators. Mm-hmm. So there's a big negative entropy flow coming in from that area, which it produces quite a lot of the order which is consumed by the others at the end. So in truth, renewable systems are actually really fossil fuel systems. Um, but Insofar in as renewables the- are
0: strictly supplemental. Yes, they can't be anything other.
1: All they've done is introduce some disorder into what was previously a very ordered system, which has to be corrected by even more capital equipment and complex system instructions from the electricity system operator. Mm-hmm. So this is intrinsically expensive. It will never be cheap. It might be all you've got, but mm-hmm. it, it is that might be a disaster. I mean, we should be much more careful about um, destabilizing these systems, and not least because, as, as I say, you will lose the low carbon agenda if you get this wrong, people will simply not accept it. You're asking them really, in essence, to accept higher rates of mortality at every age because we all live to great ages and we don't experience the pain of loss of children anymore. It's very low density, very really frequency, sorry, very low frequency in most of other societies. So, so maintaining low-cost energy is a crucial. And the next step up for, is to you know, from fossil fuels is through into nuclear. It's so clear that this must be the case that I, I'm deeply concerned that we are frustrating the development of Mm. nuclear energy through Mm. distraction and indeed dissipation of capital into what are fundamentally very unproductive sources such as wind.
0: I want to circle back a little bit just to drive this point home about economics, because there are so many tools used like levelized cost of energy or whatever. We don't have to go into the specifics. But I think that a lot of that sits on the problem of the way in which economics does not appreciate Energy in the way that it ought, insofar as it obviously needs to integrate energy into its framework. What about energy? Is that important? Like, why should that be the case for the economic field?
1: Well, as I noted earlier, energy is an abstract concept describing the potential to cause change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, what is economics if it's not about causing change in the world in a way that suits human requirements? We're creating improbable structures in relation to a human requirement, I mean, that's the fundamental definition of wealth. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's an improbable state of affairs in relation to a human requirement. Well, the potential to cause change is clearly relevant. I've mentioned Marx already. Marx was quite right. Mm-hmm. You know, the point is not to describe the world, but to change it, of course. And that's what we all do constantly, mm-hmm. always changing the world to suit ourselves. The fact that economics has neglected this physical reality is quite remarkable, but it, it is a very odd field. I mean, it, it's a, as I say, it's fundamentally 18th century field. Mm-hmm. And here's a field which claims to discuss the optimal distribution of scarce resources to uh, maximize the production of wealth, but it doesn't have principle definitions of wealth or scarcity, um, or even resource, actually. Mm-hmm. All these things can be supplied through thinking thermodynamically mm-hmm. uh, about the materials of human activity. As I say, this is you know, the, the ecology of the human species. It'll be just the same as the ecology of any other species. And of course, physicists and, uh, and biologists study it in this very physicalist way. We should take the same approach uh, to our human activities.
0: Hmm. I think that's right. And one of the, by the, it was not a claim, it was a suggestion that she made in the lecture that I found surprising and It honestly kept me up last night as I was reconsidering it, sort of thinking about about that. (laughs) No, no, no. In a good way, where I was turning it over in my head and I was thinking about how much I didn't know in order to confirm it or to disconfirm it. And it was the suggestion that part of the slow bounce back from the 08 crisis was indeed brought about by energy weakness. And I was wondering if you could get into that a little bit.
1: Well, that is a speculation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I don't know, but it's quite obvious that there is a perturbation in the energy consumption profiles in the OECD prior to 2008. Mm-hmm. There's something there. It looks as if it's beginning to stagnate prior to 2008. Now, I don't know that it has any role in the 2008 crisis. It might, mm-hmm. but I don't know. It may just be an unhappy coincidence. That there was a perturbation. After all, most of the very aggressive renewables policies start in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so you, you've got five or six years. And by 2008, the proportion of renewables in the systems in, in Europe, and, and to a degree in the US actually, quite significant, and the costs were quite large. Subsidies to renewables uh, were rising rapidly, from 2000, for example, in the UK. Currently, there are about billion UK pounds per year, multiplied by 1.3 to get um, the dollar figure. Um, it's a lot. Wow. It's a great deal for a population of 65 million people. This is enormous expenditure. Mm. And it was quite high, even in the middle 2000s, it was climbing quite rapidly. So I began to think, is it possible that, um, the introduction of renewables on this large scale, the additional costs sufficiently weakened the economy to mean that it couldn't bounce back after the 2008 crisis. Is that part of the breaking effect? Would we have seen a much more rapid recovery if we had had a fundamentally healthy and low entropy uh, energy system? Well, we can't repeat the experiment and find out, but I think there's enough there to, to, to raise the question mark and suggest, yes, it's possible that we would have fared much better had we not driven out superior fuels or been in the process of driving them out and adding cost to this Mm. fundamental input.
0: that makes me think two things. One, it makes me reconsider the importance of the shale gas revolution that happens not too far after that, which might've helped the American bounce back if this is indeed the case. And the other thing that I pulled from the lecture at large, but also this point uh, specifically is how the extent to which renewables are incredibly fragilizing you don't need that much of them to cause a lot of problems as you point out it hit the number the amount of renewables that we have on the grid in the world has risen in absolute terms since the 70s but it in the 70s it was 13 percent penetration and now it's 13.8
1: yeah i mean that is
0: astounding
1: It is an astounding fact. There's no energy transition at the global level. What we've done in Europe is export our carbon emissions to Asia. It's one of our most successful exports of recent years. (laughs) (laughs) A bitter joke. Um, (laughs) And more seriously, and of course, uh, geopolitically of vast significance, we're living on Chinese coal,
0: Mm, in effect. Yes, yeah.
1: And... We have, we're applying economic sanctions to Ukraine at the moment, or to, to the Russia in relation to Ukraine at the moment. Could we afford to apply economic sanctions to China in that way, given that we are so dependent on the fact that they're consuming energy to create order, mm-hmm. which we then consume? Mm-hmm. Could we afford to do that? Well, it's an open question, isn't it?
0: Well, and it seems like the answer is most likely no, considering as far as I know, I haven't, it is... AM, so I haven't gotten a chance to sit down and crack the news this morning, but the American attempts at sanctioning have spared the Russian energy sector because we import a substantial amount of oil from Russia, which suggests to me that in no way would uh, America or probably any of the rest of the West have appetite for that type of sanctions with China at all, because energy is the ingredient in everything, as a friend of mine likes to say. So if Mm -hmm. it goes up, everything rises with it.
1: That's quite correct. Mm -hmm. And there will be uh, reluctance to apply economic sanctions in a very full-throated way in Europe because of this energy Mm -hmm. dependence. However, it's a very serious matter, and there's real effort to diversify supplies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: With China, it's a little bit different. I and mean, we're not worried there about accessing energy from China. We're worried about being able to access the improbability uh, mm. which that energy uh, can, can give us. And that reminds us that there's actually, there are actually two aspects to energy security. There's obtaining energy to consume within your own territory. Mm. That's a very important aspect. But there's also having sufficient accumulated complexity in your capital structures, including your institutional structures and your mental representations, to be able to use the energy that you actually have.
0: Mm-hmm. And in
1: the Chinese case, we've lost a lot of that complexity to Asia generally has, has always taken the German historical school in economics, Friedrich List, much more seriously than we have. And list lays this enormous emphasis on the development of productive capacity within a country before it liberalizes externally. You can have internal liberal structures, list says, as part of your internal competition. That's what China has done. You accumulate the complexity. That makes you very productive. We've neglected that. We've allowed a lot of that complexity to bleed away into Asia, and they've aggressively collected it and, and developed it. Yeah. So they have energy security concerns about importing energy, less so about the the ability to use the energy that they can actually obtain. Mm. We, on the other hand, are so hollowed out in terms of industrial complexity. Even if we had a massive inflow of energy, we would have to spend some time rebuilding our productive capacity before we could fully make use of that renewed inflow. We got our balance wrong, in other words.
0: Mm. This reminds me of questions we were asking very early in this podcast about what does it take to build X? In other words, which supply chains, which things? We realized that it was very, very difficult to even visualize what we needed. Mm. And this thought struck me when I was visiting a colleague and he, because this is the type of person I am and the friends that I have, brought out uh, a book he found at an antiquarian bookshop that was a explanation of the steam engine for the common man and it had pull out like almost pop-up book elements and it was very sophisticated and serious very clearly written and meant to be something that could bring you up to speed in discussing this with other gentlemen about what to do (laughs) with the steam engine and I thought this is a level of institutional knowledge that has atrophied this is not, the book was obviously for mass consumption. And I thought, it is difficult to imagine such a thing now. Is that something similar to what you're talking about when you talk about the mental representations we would need to understand what to do?
1: Yes, I, I, I don't want to sound alarmist about it, but I, I do feel that there may be a tendency, a social tendency that we are slipping back towards thermodynamic equilibrium. That we, we have been through periods in the relatively recent past 50 or 60 years ago when we were actually further from thermodynamic equilibrium, both in terms of our extrasomatic capital, our bridges and, and structures, but also in our, our minds and in our educational traditions that we maybe we are slipping. I mean it's not possible to be dogmatic about it. After all, we're still very complex. Uh, We're talking about an overall aggregate system. It's very hard to tell. We can't measure the entropy of even very small objects, let alone an entire society. So this is wild speculation, of course. But the evidence you suggest, the the comparison of books, interests me too. I've I've noticed it in the humanities that texts from the 1920s and 30s often compare very favorably with texts aimed at similar levels in the educational system Mm -hmm. today. Indeed, they often seem very much more demanding. And in the technical areas, this is also true. Um, You can pick up redundant textbooks intended for school education Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1940s and 50s that look like university textbooks today. Mm -hmm. We're trying to, there's a very, very different level of ambition. Now, perhaps those books in the past just went over the heads of the people which they were presented. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but uh, nevertheless, they were exposed to very difficult and demanding material. And perhaps it worked.
0: Perhaps it did. I mean, this is one of the things that I find compelling about your work is that it has this, as we've said at the beginning, humanities element to it, this idea of the mental model, the the understanding. I think that to me is one of the things that preoccupies me when I think about this because having been on the left in America, there's a tendency for things to become Medicare for all. And I mean that in this sense, It becomes a thing that everybody says that they want, and that's how you know someone is a good person. But it, of course, will maybe never happen for all sorts of reasons, because a certain level of basic political arithmetic and work just never gets done. And instead, it is a meme used as a sorting technique to create in-groups and out-groups in the political milieu. And I worry that that is a product of a lack of mental models about how to create political coalitions, the basic stewardship of a republic in America to get things done, but that this will become a standard for what are major issues in this country that have to do with high-level institutions that involve many complex features and industrial ones like that, which require lots of energy or which produce lots of energy, would fall under that rubric. That is something that I really do wonder about. Well, we can see this, I
1: think, highly undesirable tendency very plainly in discussions of climate change policy. Yes. I mean, it is almost impossible to say anything critical of the current policies without being accused of wishing to do nothing about climate change. And I've had this consistently over the last 10 years. So I will say the policies at the moment are not working. We've got to do something different. And they'll say, but the problem is so serious. We've got to do everything we possibly can. And this is like I think the problem is so serious. It justifies doing something stupid. <laughs> well, that's, that's foolish. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, but it's, it's very, very difficult to get beyond this. So renewables are entrenched. If you criticize renewables, you're considered to be criticizing the low carbon agenda in itself, which I'm not. Mm-hmm. I do think that one has to be careful about the scale and pace so that you keep the public on board. And I do think mm-hmm. you have to be very much wiser in your energy choices about mm-hmm. it. Uh, and I think there's a, a role for fossil fuels uh, in, in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we may have much more time than some of the alarmists think, which is fortunate. I mean, Steve Coonan has published a remarkable book, Unsettled, yes. uh, on the state of climate science. It's a very cold head, cool you know, approach to this matter, suggesting we shouldn't panic. We may have time, we should certainly take it seriously. There's no need for a headless chicken approach to this. Mm. And indeed, every argument against a headless chicken approach, it will be counterproductive. If the problem is as serious as people are saying it is, we've got to be very serious in the way we tackle it. And to me, that means focusing on the thermodynamics, getting as much benefit as we can out of gas and heading to nuclear. That Mm. seems to me eminently practical and reasonable, but due to the kind of, uh, as you say, the sorting effect of the rhetoric that's come about, that sort of cold headed argument just doesn't get the hearing that it deserves and must eventually get if we are to maintain our societies and reduce emissions and control climate change.
0: No, I I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the ideas that um, inspired by your work I've been tossing around in my head is that um, when we look at the mental model thing, I think about experiments in cybernetics and all of these things that happen in the seventies that in the forties and fifties when the groundwork for Silicon Valley gets laid. But in that, I see a transition from the, not a revolution, perhaps a slow, subtle transition from the transistor society to the semiconductor society. And that those are actually different social experiences that require a rethinking of how consensus is generated, how to have cool headed debates. And it can't rely in the same way that economics can't rely on its 18th century assumptions. It can't rely on the assumptions of the previous democratic era to achieve that consensus. Now, what the implications of that are, what that means, I'm not sure, but when I look at, let's say the energy of information, that is what I think. Mm.
1: Information is certainly not a spirit and requires enormous energy input mm-hmm. to support. You know, the creation and deletion of information is an energy process. There is a reason why the mathematics in the information theory and the mathematics of thermodynamics are so similar, indeed almost mm-hmm. identical. It's the same world. Under yeah. consideration. <laughs> uh, information has to be registered in the physical world. And it requires transformations, and it's governed by thermodynamics, of course. So, yes, I'm, Bitcoin miners require enormous amounts of energy looking for their improbable numbers. And uh, the information society requires a very uh, low entropy energy indeed. So it, insofar as our democracies are dependent on information exchange and debate through electronic, they're becoming more dependent on energy rather than less. Mm -hmm. And that should be also a concern for those who are advocating the thermodynamic degradation of the energy supply through the introduction of renewables. There may be a sense in which you're making it inevitable that democratic participation becomes much more difficult in renewably fueled but large societies, Mm. because you simply can't move the information around in such large quantities as you have hitherto. I mean, I'm it's very much in favor of maintaining high levels of information transfer. Oh, as am I. Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, I don't think we should close that down at all. I didn't when start I two podcasts
0: it. for nothing, John. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're sincere about it. That's good. Uh, I, I'm not. You know, I, I open the newspaper with a dismay sometimes. There's just there's, there's too much information about a great deal of things. But uh, one has to be one has to accept that it's part of the the downside of the upside, mm. and one wants the upside. Um, but energy, absolutely essential to maintaining that. And I I can't see. Any way in which one could um, substitute for it, it's simply in principle, impossible. you simply must have energy to do these things. But there's a widespread assumption that information will allow us to dematerialize. That's yes. a strange thing to suggest. Mm. I and mean, you, you think about it, in what sense could that possibly be true without demonstration of a transcendental realm for which mm. Uh, we have no evidence maybe there but uh, we have no evidence of it
0: well it wouldn't just be that you would have to demonstrate the existence of it but also that you could access it practically through the computers that swap information around which i think would be even harder as a demonstration and beyond the pale for even most believers in the transcendental realm
1: yes it would come it would enter the the physical realm presumably um, but the relevance here is, is, is quite um, deep. I mean, we hear a great deal of talk about economies. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is a perpetual motion machine, actually, and we know that's not going to work. So, mm-hmm. talk about the circular economy rather like talk about decoupling is actually rhetorical. No one's really expecting or shouldn't be really expecting mm-hmm. full decoupling from resource consumption. That's not mm-hmm. possible. You shouldn't expect a fully circular economy. It's going to need an external. This is not a closed system. It must be an open system with resources entering and waste leaving, not being accumulated within it at any rate. And if it's rhetoric, then we should be honest about it and not mislead people into thinking that you can actually have a full decoupling of wealth creation from resource consumption and energy consumption in particular. And similarly, you're not going to achieve a fully circular society. That shouldn't discourage you in attempting to make better uses of the resources that you have, Mm. but it should make you realistic about what is actually achievable and also perhaps make you more willing to accept actually achievable improvements, which are not one of the the dangers of proposing uh, this full-scale idealism is that you begin to reject the modest achievement the modest improvements that you can actually make so going back to the question you asked why do things seem so difficult often because we have completely unrealistic expectations about what we can actually do if you set if you call for better bread than was ever baked <laughs> you're going to be very dissatisfied and unhappy with the bread you can actually make mm. you know just you know, ha- teach yourself to be happy with what you can actually get is mm. a very important point in this, and, and, and socio-politically, that's crucial. You know, we can do lots of good things, which are not necessarily one hundred percent ideal. Well, too bad. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the way it is. But that's also the the reason why, in your lecture, you spend such a sustained amount of time looking at this idea of the so-called industrial revolution, because that becomes a false standard against which exactly. we weigh our expectations and becomes a self-fulfilling f- fulfilling prophecy of, frankly, bitterness and resentment at yes. our own circumstances.
1: Yes, and we needn't be that unhappy about things. Um, yeah. Things are bad enough without us making ourselves even more miserable than we need to be. I mean, they're, Right, they're right. They're difficult. Yeah,
0: we'll, we'll <laughs> never be able to abolish pain. Life is still life.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you could abolish pain, you'd almost certainly sweep pleasure away with the same broom, wouldn't you? Uh, it yeah. would be a disaster. Yes, we... we the, the the expectations created by the, the I think the mistaken narrative of the industrial revolution are I think very deep and persuasive. I, mean, I see Arnold Toynbee as in some sense the most historiographically significant person mm. in the last 150 years, because that that concept of revolution is so uh, so so well distributed. I mean, so thoroughly distributed and so unquestioned in so many areas that it has created the false expectation of rapid change, which makes us, as as you're suggesting, dissatisfied with the incremental, but very real improvements Mm -hmm. that we can actually bring about. Mm -hmm.
0: No, I think that's right. And I think we've come full circle. So we will end it on that note. Thank you so much for spending time with me. This was great fun.
1: It was great to talk to you, and uh, great fun indeed. I look forward to uh, seeing the
0: podcast myself. Yes, absolutely. Okay, friends, stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time. All day,
1: all night, Liberty City's only 24 hour dub music radio.
0: Oh, in peace oh. to the <laughs> What's happening? What's happening? I talk it, I don't get like I talk it, don't get fuck it like I talk it. Yeah, Take my shoes and walk a mile, something that you can't do. Big talks of the town, big boy game moves, moves. I like to walk around with my chain loose. She just bought a new ass, but got the same boots, Same Give it up, dope scientists. That's my sauce where you find it. That's my sauce when you find it. I had enough chicks, no mind. Heard you uh-huh. sound your life, for that brand new chain, You get with the Walk it like a fucking walk, it walk it like a fucking walk, it walk it like walk, it walk it walk,
1: it like a it walk it walk it like walk it walk it it walk it walk it walk it like it walk it like it
0: walk it walk it